You're listening to Headline from WUSC News. I'm Morjalis. After the recent Black Lives Matter protest in South Carolina, there's been a lot of debate surrounding some of the state's monuments and building names. USC President Bob Caslin confirmed in a town hall meeting earlier this week that 17 of the university's 60 buildings had direct ties to controversial or racist figures. Recent petitions to change the names of some of these buildings have grown popular over the past few weeks, and the Board of Trustees voted last Friday to remove the name of J. Marion Sims from USC's Sims Residence Hall. But the issue is a little more complex than it seems. Joining me today to talk about why it's so hard to change the names of buildings in South Carolina and some potential solutions to the issue is USC professor and historian Thomas Brown. Professor Brown is author of the book Civil War Canon, Sites of Confederate Memory in South Carolina, and has done extensive research into the Civil War and Reconstruction era. Professor Brown, thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, so I'm sure you've been keeping up with this ongoing debate about whether or not these monuments that have been dedicated to Confederate war heroes or other maybe, you know, Confederate sympathizers, um, whether they should be taken down and removed from the public eye. What are your thoughts on this, and do you think it's a necessary step to take? Well, um, my thoughts are that it has uh, been a fast-moving process. It is um, something that... um, that really did not get very much attention until the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2012. Um, The state of South Carolina was debating the Confederate flag intensely um, through the 1990s and um, didn't talk about Confederate monuments at all. Um, The the topic uh, really only emerges in the 2010s and really accelerates after the Charleston massacre and uh, and then Charlottesville in 2017. And then it has accelerated tremendously in this uh, past uh, six weeks or so. Yeah. So in South Carolina alone, there are a number of monuments that have been caused for concern. You know, there's clearly the John C. Calhoun statue in Charleston has gotten a lot of media attention in the past few weeks, uh, but also some buildings on USC's campus. So there's Sims Residence Hall, uh, named after J. Marion Sims, the father of gynecology. Uh, it's probably gotten the most media attention recently. And there's also the Strom Thurmond uh, Gym, the Wellness and Fitness Center. Uh, what do you think about these buildings in particular? I mean, it seems like no one would debate that these people did some pretty horrible things or had some pretty controversial ideas. But, you know, where is that debate stemming from? Well, I'm not quite sure what you mean by um, where it's stemming from, but it, I guess one place that it's stemming from is that the state government has basically tried to disempower communities and institutions like the university and to take away um, local authority to decide um, whether they want to have these localities and local institutions want to have these monuments or uh, memorial names for buildings. So that, that's really, I guess, a, a big framework for the debate. Yeah, and for the people in South Carolina who want to keep these building names, a lot of them saying that it's a part of their heritage, you know, the same people who are saying, who are flying Confederate flags and say that, you know, that era of history, while it may be controversial now, represents their history. And that if these names or if these monuments are removed, that history might be erased. As a historian, what do you have to say about that? 
Well, I, I, as a historian, I do have to say that taking down a monument is not the same thing as erasing history. Um, people who are worried that it's erasing history will be glad to hear that the um, university library will still have millions and millions of books, um, many of which are history books that record history, uh, debate history in tremendous detail. So um, it's not as if history is, is, there's any danger that history is going to be erased. Um, this, this particular form of celebrating particular people um, is what's under debate. And um, that's, that's a different thing from erasing history. Yeah, and, and on Friday, the Board of Trustees at USC, they just voted to remove the name of J. Marion Sims from the Sims Residence Hall on campus and change it. But it's not that simple. It now has to go to the General Assembly. Tell me about why this process is so complicated. Well, it is, it is part of the deal that the defenders of the Confederate flag struck when the Confederate flag came down from the State House dome and ah, okay. went in front of the State House in 2000. And that's the, the origin of the, the Heritage Act. Um, it was part of the, um, you know, kind of retreat to a reinforced position, as it were, for the defenders of Confederate memory. Um, and so that's, they adopted this, this Heritage Act. Yeah, so this past week, Governor McMaster said that he actually supported the law as it is, but he didn't really give any word on if he supported changing the building names on campus. Uh, do you see any benefit at all in having the Heritage Act as is? No, I don't. Um, okay. <laughs> these, um, these, these names, these monuments, um, they are uh, expressions of institutions and communities. And, and um, so the University of South Carolina uh, chose uh, names for its buildings, uh, you know, chose to, to name a hall for Sims in, in 1939. Um, we're a very different institution now. Um, but still, the, um, the university should get to decide what it wants to call its buildings. Um, and local communities should get to decide what, what kinds of monuments they want to have. So it is not it is not just about preserving heritage. It's about disempowering kind of, you know, grassroots autonomy. Yeah, so, so a lot of these buildings also weren't even, or buildings and monuments really, weren't even named immediately after the Civil War, but were actually built after 1890, even in the early 20th century. You know, what's that all about? Is, is it rooted in systemic racism? Was this something to intimidate African-Americans? Well, well absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, some that were built before then were, were um, designed to intimidate African-Americans. You mentioned the Calhoun Monument in Charleston. That is part of the expansion of Charleston moving in from the water, um, building up Marion Square as a kind of showcase for the city. And the the commitment to put the Calhoun Monument in Marion Square, um, which was which was an area that had um, previously had a substantial free black population, the idea of putting the Calhoun Monument there is partly um, a way of of kind of signaling a white takeover of what had been a, a substantially black area, uh, and that was a decision that was made before the Civil War was fought. So. Um, yeah, that was that, that's definitely part of the agenda of these monuments, whether they were uh, these 
Confederate monuments, whether they were in anticipation of the Confederacy, in the immediate aftermath of the Confederacy, or long after the Confederacy. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I understand you say there's a problem as well with just taking these things down and putting them in museums. A lot of people say that that is a solution, a potential solution to this that kind of is like a compromise for both sides. The people who say that it's erasing history, the people who say they need to be taken down. Maybe we should just put them in a museum. What do you have to say about that? Well, uh, they are um, individual cases, and I don't doubt that some of them would lend themselves to good museum interpretation. Um, I don't. I would think that the Calhoun Monument in Charleston would have a very long history that is very tied to the development of the town and, and different populations. And, um, you know, the Charleston Museum seems to me a, like kind of a logical home for that. Um, on the other hand, many, many of these monuments are coming down, and they don't all have to go in museums, or, or even necessarily many of them. Um, I, I can uh, understand the museum professionals who have, who have resisted that suggestion on the ground that it makes the museum seem like a warehouse. Um, uh, museums certainly, again, museums should have institutional autonomy to decide what they want to collect and what they want to interpret. Um, I can see some museums deciding some of these things would be good objects to have, some museums deciding that uh, they'll pass. Yeah. So, you know, as a historian, if these monuments are taken down, are there any historical figures that you think might be good fits to replace these statues in South Carolina history? And do you have any in mind? Um, not especially. I am not. Uh, I think it's a healthy um, topic uh, for uh, people to uh, discuss. Uh, it's a good way for the community to kind of explore its values. Um, but I don't think we necessarily have to be committed to having as many statues as we have had. Um, the country didn't have had hardly any statues before the Civil War. Had hardly any public monuments before the Civil War. Right? John Quincy Adams uh, said before the Civil War. Democracy has no monuments. It strikes no medals, right? The idea was that the, the raising one person above others was kind of antithetical to democracy. And needless to say, we have gone a long ways away from that. But um, Adams um, made a good point. Yeah, and so finally, just last thing, taking the monuments and the building names off, more harm than good or better than what we've had? Uh, better than what we've had. Better than what we've had. It's a, it it um, could help to shape a different um, landscape of the university and the community. So it's a, it's a productive thing. That was Professor and Civil War historian Thomas Brown, author of Civil War Canon, Sites of Confederate Memory in South Carolina. We'll be right back. We all know a good party gets the heart pumping, a chance to see your friends again, have a good time. But what happens when your good time puts someone else at risk? Healthcare workers risk their own lives to save ours. Since April 9th, more than 9,000 have tested positive for COVID-19 across America. The choice is yours, Gamecocks. Will it be another Monday night out or a movie night in? Stay in and help stop the worst from happening. Hashtag I pledge Columbia. Stay home. Are you crazy? Stay home. Do your part and stay home. Staying home doesn't always save lives. 
Did you know, South Carolina ranks fifth in the nation for women killed by men they know. With stay-at-home orders in effect, you may feel trapped, isolated, or less safe than ever before. We know domestic violence doesn't stop, even in the midst of a pandemic. Learn how to get help for you or someone you love at sistercare.org. The South Carolina primaries and runoffs are now over, and all eyes are on the upcoming 2020 election. Some local-level races, like the Senate race between Democrat Jamie Harrison and incumbent Lindsey Graham, have garnered national attention. But you might want to keep your eye on some other races, too. Also on the national level, of course, President Donald Trump will face off with Democrat Joe Biden, and that has brought to the forefront all sorts of issues. So here to break it all down with me are three of WUSC's political correspondents. We have opinion editor at The Daily Gamecock, Stephanie Allen. Hello, Stephanie. Hello. Producer of the WUSC news show, Politically Inclined, also named Stephanie, Stephanie Justice. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, it's good to be here. And finally, political reporter and host of WSC News show Hot Topic, Flynn Snyder. How are you, Flynn? Hi, good. How are you doing? Great. All right. So to start things off, we're going to start talking a little bit about some local level races to keep an eye on. Jamie Harrison and Lindsey Graham is obviously the big one that everyone's really talking about. Stephanie Justice, I'll start with you. What do you think? Does Jamie have a chance to unseat Lindsey Graham in this race? Well, Jamie Harrison, of course, is the first viable Democratic challenger that Graham has had in years, and he is showing some potential in the race. So Harrison has outraised Lindsay twice so far in this election cycle and has received a lot of national media attention. And in South Carolina, people on both sides are frustrated with Graham. Many moderate Democrats disavow Graham as a Trump loyalist, but Graham has recently made statements that distance himself from Trump, which has made many Trump supporters in this state very unhappy with Graham. So it's hard to know if these factors will actually add up to a victory for Harrison because 92% of his fundraising is coming from out-of-state donations, which means that Harrison will be able to make more ad buys and get his message out there on television, but that may also mean that more money might not translate into more votes because this money is not coming from actual voters within South Carolina. I see. I see the issue now. So, so do you think that Lindsey Graham has any real advantages over Jamie Harrison besides the fact that um, that most of Jamie Harrison's support is from out of the state? Well, Lindsey Graham still, of course, has the support of Trump, despite the rockiness that has been going on between them in recent months. While Graham tries to toe the partisan line while vying for his re-election, but the Cook Political Report still says that his Senate seat is likely Republican. So it's hard to see where Lindsey ha- will have any like distinct challenges while trying to get re-elected. Okay. So a- any other races that you think we should be looking out for this year in South Carolina, Stephanie? I mean, I, I know Joe Cunningham is going to be defending his seat in District 1, and that was a, that was a big surprise in 2018. Any other races in, on your mind? Well, District 1 will be definitely one to watch because Nancy Mace just won the GOP primary 
for District 1. And of course, Cunningham is the first Democrat to hold the seat since the 1980s. And he only beat Katie Arrington, the Trump-backed Republican in the district, by only 1.4% of the vote. And Mace, after she won her primary, received an enthusiastic endorsement from Trump on Twitter. And the Republican Party really likes her. She's a Citadel graduate. She's a current GOP representative in the South Carolina State House, and she served as a field director for Trump's 2016 campaign. And this is definitely one to watch because Cunningham's district is one of new one of many districts in America who is currently represented by a Democrat who voted for Trump in 2016. So this will be a chance for us to see if Cunningham's victory in 2018 was a fluke or if the district one is truly trending blue. Okay, so so and then last thing, I know uh, another race that people have been looking at, uh, Joe Wilson's seat. Um, what, what do you think about that race? Joe Wilson is currently being challenged by Dare Ford Burroughs, which is the most viable Democratic challenger he has had in his 20-year congressional career. Burroughs has outraised Wilson every quarter since she's um, entered the race, which is surprising because the district is still solidly Republican by Cook Political Report. She doesn't have much national media coverage, so you know a lot of her money is coming within the state and not out of state like it is with Jamie Harrison's race. But with the current suspension of in-person events and with District 2 being as rural as it is, which means it's not very caught up technologically, it will be a bit harder for Burroughs to actually reach out to potential constituents and make her case for as to why they should vote for her over Wilson. Uh, okay, so definitely makes sense. Speaking of out fundraising, though, let's move over to the national level a little bit. Uh, Joe Biden just outraised Donald Trump for the first time this quarter. And, you know, he's going to be taking on Donald Trump in November. And a lot of people are kind of they're kind of skeptical over whether or not Joe Biden can pull this off. Donald Trump has really made it clear that Mike Pence is going to be returning as his VP. Um, but Joe Biden's got a real serious decision on his hand about, you know, who who can he who can be his running mate that will really unify the party. So I'm going to turn it over to Stephanie Allen now. Uh, Stephanie, if you were Joe Biden, who do you think would be the smartest choice as a running mate? Yeah, much earlier in his campaign, Biden did uh, make the pledge to make his vice president a woman. And so now there's lists of several potential candidates for his vice president. And now with current political climate uh, as it is, there are many people who are also advocating that it be a woman of color who be the vice president. So women such as Kamala Harris, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and then, of course, women like uh, Elizabeth Warren are also being considered. But I think one of the one of the more viable candidates right now would be Keisha Lance Bottoms. She is um, from Atlanta. She's been working to manage the coronavirus in this very large city and has been one of the first people, not one of the first, she has um, been very actively outspoken against the uh, Republican governor in their early reopening. She's also been speaking about criminal justice reform, and I think she has all of that kind of uh, energy that we have been needing in this current political climate, uh, especially to help balance out Joe Biden, who has been certainly far from what a lot of people on the left are looking for in their presidential candidate. So uh, she has had a short term in office compared to some of the other people who are in uh, in the running for vice president, but I think she has a lot to bring to the table. And uh, 
can really, as a woman of color, bring uh, some significant change and an interesting voice to this uh, dialogue. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Flynn, what are your thoughts on this? Um, do you have any specific candidate that you have in mind that maybe would be even better than, than her? Yeah, so I mean, as Stephanie said, with the growing support for Joe Biden to pick a woman of color as his pick, Amy Klobuchar recently, um, who was seen as a strong pick for VP and a former rival of Biden's in the Democratic primary, withdrew her name from consideration last week, saying that she actually called Biden and told him that that he should choose a woman of color as his running mate. Um, With that, Senator Kamala Harris, who Stephanie also mentioned, um, another former primary challenger and the only black female senator is said to be a strong pick for Biden's P- uh, VP. Uh, she's seen as the front runner right now in the vetting process and is said to bring the demographic balance that Biden needs in his campaign. Um, she has been intensely focused on racial injustice throughout her career and in her time in the district attorney's office in San Francisco and as attorney general of California. And uh, she is the growing bet in recent polls amongst Democrats, despite her disappointing presidential run earlier this year and in late 2019. Uh, Many Dems see her as having a more potential to lead during this time. Um, Other women of color are also being vetted right now as well. According to news reports, uh, Florida Representative Val Demings and Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, as Stephanie said. Um, Also, former National Security Advisor for the Obama administration, Susan Rice, said to be under consideration as well. Um, And just yesterday, we learned that Representative Karen Bass of California and the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus was said to be uh, being vetted as well. Um, Now, with that, there are still some white candidates under consideration as well, according to the New York Times. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator uh, Tammy Baldwin uh, from Wisconsin, uh, uh, or rather Tammy Baldwin, and then from Wisconsin, uh, Governor Gretchen Wilson, uh, Wilp Whitmer rather, of Michigan, who has been in a back and forth with President Trump in recent weeks over the coronavirus response. So that has really thrust her into a national spotlight. Yeah, it, well, let me stop you for a second. How important do you think it is that, you know, you've said a lot of candidates, but do you think that it'd be a deal breaker for Democratic voters if Joe Biden didn't select a woman of color? I think, and as we've seen in recent months, that what voters are looking for has changed. After the coronavirus pandemic and after recent protests regarding the death of George Floyd, what voters are looking for has changed. I think if Biden doesn't pick a woman of color as his uh, running mate, I think voters will be disappointed and he will miss um, the potential to make history in this um, time where voters are looking for change. They're not looking for the same as we've seen in recent months and weeks. So I think it would be a missed opportunity if he didn't pick a woman of color. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is this is kind of bringing up a really big discussion here about, you know, how the Democratic Party's base really needs to be unified by this candidate. One of the things that's really baffled me about Donald Trump over the past few years is just how loyal his base is, no matter what he does. I just don't understand it. But there's a clear split in the Democratic Party. And I'm going to go back to Stephanie Allen. You know, do you think that Joe Biden is going to be able to unify this party and bring these Bernie bros uh, to vote for him. What do you think? Right. Uh, Obviously, Joe Biden has already had a bit of a contentious campaign, but according to some recent polls, about um, 80% of Bernie supporters have agreed to vote for Biden. There's about 15% who would say that they would instead defer and vote for Trump, but I think he has a pretty solid standing with them. And For the most part, I think it's going to be a matter of grinning and bearing it for a lot of people on the left. And the rhetoric has kind of been blue no matter who um, within this current race. 
Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Um, and clearly, you can't forget about uh, the recent New York Times poll that came out that had Donald Trump down 14 points under Biden that, you know, recently came out. Also, this rally in Tulsa, we can't forget this, you know, it was supposed to be this huge thing and got all this media attention. But then, you know, only a few thousand people came, a big flop for Donald Trump. Stephanie Justice, I'm going to end where I started off. You know, what's happening here? Do you think Donald Trump is losing support or is this some other kind of polling fiasco or something like in 2016? What are your thoughts? Well, since 2016, I think that election cycle has taught us to be cautiously optimistic about the polar coaster because, as we know, it can people get it wrong sometimes, and this could be another case. And I'd like to like caution other listeners that we are still six months away from the general election. Polls mean nothing right now. We are currently in the middle of the pandemic, so yes. Many people are dissatisfied with Trump's current handling of coronavirus, but that doesn't mean that his supporters won't rally behind him in November because the bottom line is that his, like you said, his supporters are extremely loyal no matter what he does. So it doesn't matter what's going on right now. In November, they will be in the polling booths voting for him. So Joe Biden needs to find a response to this loyalism and unite the party. Yeah, I totally agree. And that was, you know, that's one of the one of the things that's going to make this a real uphill battle for the Democrats this this coming election season. Well, thanks so much, you guys, for the great discussion about politics, both Stephanie's and Flynn. Um, look forward to hearing back from you guys soon. Thanks so much. Well, that's all for this week's episode of Headline. Make sure to tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. for the week's biggest stories. The music for Headline is called Conversation by Broken Summer. Headline is a production by WSC News and is part of the Garnet Media Group Podcast Network. Garnet Media Group is a partnership between the student-run media outlets at the University of South Carolina. You can find other Garnet Media Group podcasts and student work on garnetmediagroup.org. From WSC News in Columbia, I'm Ward Jollis, and this is Headline.